We are in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We've kind of been there since the end of last year. And we looked at chapter 1 and chapter 2 and kind of built and and saw the narrative of Jesus' birth and uh, and the announcements of birth for John the Baptist and for Christ. But now we're coming back and kind of laying some foundations. It's our our desire in, in the first few messages in the Gospel of Luke to help you see what are the broader themes and and what's significant about this gospel. And as we come to study and to submit ourselves to the scripture, how, how can we be in tune with what the gospel writer Luke is seeking to accomplish? And so we come to Luke chapter 1, and, and Luke begins to, to lay out the purpose for his writing. We see that in verses 1 to 4. As Isaac was reading for us, and you were listening and maybe reading along, what did you detect or what would you say in maybe just one word as to the purpose of Luke's gospel? Why did Luke write this? What was the, what's one word that stands out in your mind that would kind of capture or summarize the reason for Luke's writing this gospel record? What would you say? Certainty, great, that's drawn right out of the text. There's certainty that can be had, and that's what Luke is is aiming for. We see that especially in verse 4. Luke wants this man, Theophilus, whoever he is, most excellent Theophilus, this two-volume work that begins with the Gospel of Luke and continues and picks up the story of the work of God in this new church movement, the the new covenant movement that was initiated by Christ into the world. And that's found for us in Acts chapter 1. But certainty is what Luke has at the forefront of his attention as he seeks to capture and write down and document the ministry and life of the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe you think about the word reliability. Maybe you think about the word credibility or trustworthiness or consistency. All of these words are are meaningful and helpful, but the the theological term that we're going to be just touching on a bit this morning in working through this text is the word inerrancy. The word inerrancy or the word infallibility. These are doctrinal words that that help us to understand and and, and capture and articulate what we believe about the Scripture. We believe the Scripture is inerrant. What does inerrancy mean? Well, it means that it's not fallible. It's not capable of erring. It's entirely exempt from liability to make mistake. You might say it is without error, free from error. It is true in every way. It's trustworthy, reliable, credible. And the underlying question for us when we present this theological term of inerrancy is the question of, does the Bible contain the words of God or is the Bible fundamentally the word of God from beginning to end? And the difference would be, do we find the words of God in the Bible that we read through and here and there and, and various places as we read, we, we come across the words of God, 
Or is the word of God true from start to finish so that every single word is trustworthy and comes from God? And that's what we mean when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture. It is the, the inerrancy or trustworthiness, the credibility and trueness of the word from start to finish, every word, every letter given to us by God and captured for us in the Scriptures. So that we come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and we see the words written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And I put three different translations here to help us kind of understand the meaning behind these words. The ESV says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The New King James says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The New English translation says, every scripture is inspired by God. Without exception, the word that we hold in our hands is a word that is true. Without exception, the word that we hold in our hand is a word given to us by God. And we know that God in his character, who cannot lie, is giving to us a true, authentic word from himself. So we believe that every word of the Bible comes from God, and thus every word of the Bible is true. Well, does this matter? Does it matter that the Bible is true from start to finish? Every word is true? Well, it matters to the Apostle Paul, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It also matters to Luke, as we're going to see in our passage this morning. But I appreciate the thoughts of a couple of men. As I was listening to some sermons this week, Ligon Duncan says this, every time you meet a doctrine of the Scripture, you are meeting a doctrine of God. And so, if you have a low view of Scripture, you have a low view of God. MacArthur has said, every word is true, or since every word is true, every word must be preached. If we believe it's all from God, and we believe that every word that he has communicated to us is meaningful, helpful, necessary, I might even say essential for the Christian life. That's why we don't just uh, camp in the New Testament as uh, relevant as that might seem to us in the church age. We recognize that the truths of God going all the way back to Genesis are helpful and necessary for us to inform our faith. And so... In 2 Timothy chapter 3.15, which is the verse that just precedes the one we just read, Paul is telling Timothy, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what Scripture is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. God's Word is true. <laughs> and because every word is true, every word must be preached. And that's why... We are committed to expository preaching. Commitment to the inerrancy, reliability, infallibility of the Word of God. It should be no surprise then that the Word of God not only matters to the writers of Scripture, but the Word of God also matters to our adversary, the devil. It matters to Satan. And it matters because he wants to pollute and corrupt that word. This is the battleground at which every battle in the Christian life is fought. is a battle for truth. It is a battle for what you believe. And while some of the battle is fought in overt 
and very forward in public ways, there are, is a battle that happens every day in your own heart. A battle for truth. That while intellectually you may believe or give assent to the trustworthy of Scripture, practically and functionally in your heart, you bear witness to what you truly believe. Do you really believe that this is true in that it plays out in your life on a daily basis? Scripture really is on trial in your life every day. Is it true? And does your life bear witness to the integrity of that word? Do you believe the Bible is true? Do you use the word of God as the standard by which you measure your life? Or so often, the things in life we measure ourselves, our success as a businessman, our success as a parent, our success as a student, our success as an individual who is liked and who is uh, seen in the world and the social media structures as, as arriving in terms of, of beauty and intellectual prowess and our scholarship and the ways that we are able to, to interact with the world. What is the standard of success in your life? What is the measure of success? Is, is it a worldly wisdom or is it a wisdom that is given to us by God himself in his word? And that's what the Gospel of Luke seeks to convey to us today. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, wants this reader, Theophilus, to know that God's word is true. And since it is true, it will change everything about the way you live. Everything about the way you respond. I want to walk through this just uh, briefly for us this morning. Just kind of walk through this passage. And, and, I, and I really hope at the end to be able to make a, a personal connection for you that you can take home and put to work in your daily life. Luke's goal is this purpose statement that we find in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. He does this in several different ways that we're going to see this morning. First, he does this as his writing is consistent with present witnesses. His writing is consistent with present witnesses. And he uses and refers to, to two or three, depending upon your perspective, Two or three different witnesses that help to affirm the integrity and reliability of the Word of God. Notice them with me. Verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke is referring to other historians or other gospel writers who are capturing the story of the life of Jesus. Many who have undertaken to compile this narrative. Now, we don't know who those writers were, who those historians were. We know that probably Matthew and Mark would have been included in that list, but there were probably others as well. The, the point of all of this is that this narrative, this story, is captured in history. And because it's historical, it is verifiable. It's subject to scrutiny. It's subject to fact checking. They can determine the consistency of the message. They can evaluate it in relationship to the other accounts that they've heard. Luke is careful to refer to 
special people and events that happen in history very beginning uh, from the very beginning of this record. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we see there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah. In chapter 2, verse 1, we see it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Verse 2, this census first took place while Quirinius was governor over Syria. And then in chapter 3, he refers to seven more people. He says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and uh, Tachinitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, let me tell you, if you are not committed to the integrity and authenticity of your narrative, you are not going to be talking about these historical figures and pinpointing specific and precise dates. And Luke wasn't concerned about this because he knew that what he was writing was true. He was committed to the integrity of the Scripture. Test it. See for yourself. Take a look and know that the person I am talking about is anchored in history. You can verify it for yourself. This is a bold assertion. And in this, just these two verses here, he makes a reference to at least seven different people that were there in that first century. But notice he also refers to those who compiled. To compile is to compose in an orderly manner or to document the very outset of this gospel, Luke acknowledges that many others had already undertaken to compile this narrative of Jesus' life and seek to articulate and develop for the readers the life and ministry of Jesus. Certainly, Matthew and Mark would be included as those who had compiled a witness. And we don't know for sure whether or not Luke had read Matthew and Mark, but we, we can be pretty confident of the fact that as Luke was a companion of Paul in his ministry, and that Mark was also a companion of Barnabas, and, and Peter refers to him as my son Mark at the end of 1 Peter, there was a lot of overlap, and so Luke would have had access to Mark. Luke would have had access to Matthew as disciples of Jesus Christ. He would have had the account that they had recorded and had been given uh, Mark underneath the, the, the help and apostleship of Peter. And so the narrative that was written by Luke is one that can be confirmed through testimony, not just of his own work, but through testimony of others who had written about Jesus' claims. Now, I don't know how it works in your home, but at my home, when I tell a story, I have at least seven other fact-checkers. And they will either uh, help to correct the nuances of my story that need help. And uh, by the way, there are usually things in my story that need lots of help. And so I lean on them for that. But Luke is doing the same. He is allowing this work of of the gospel, this compilation of the life and ministry of Jesus to be checked by those who have gone before. Notice also in verse 2, 
we find eyewitnesses. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. These would be those who had experienced personally the ministry of Jesus to them. Perhaps Mary, the mother of Jesus. In her travels with the beloved Apostle John, having come to Ephesus with John, maybe Luke had a chance of, of getting this first-hand account from, from Mary in, in terms of, of what it was like to hear from the angel. How did you feel about this and, and, and the experience of the shepherds coming and worshiping Jesus there? Well, Luke captures a bit of that for us in chapter 2, verse 19, when he says, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then in chapter 2, verse 51, But his mother kept all these things in her heart. How did Luke know that? Well, certainly he could have known that through the, the, the help of the Holy Spirit. But I, I wonder if Mary had, had provided a firsthand testimony to Luke about the the special events that took place on that night so long ago in Bethlehem. Luke also has some unique stories. We find in, in Luke chapter 8, the reference to Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and others who supported Jesus' ministry and who followed him along with the disciples and, and were also eyewitnesses of all the works of Jesus, his words in his life and his ministry. Only Luke gives mention to them. Or how about Zacchaeus in, in Luke chapter 19 who climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Now we don't know if it was a sycamore tree. But Zacchaeus' first-hand testimony of that encounter with Christ there in Jericho. Or how about Cleopas in Luke chapter 24? These special stories that, that Luke is able to key in on, I think because of the eyewitness testimony from those who, who had experienced it firsthand. But also, and maybe more importantly, it's important to, to recognize the fact that eyewitnesses are connected here with this word and witnesses, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. There were ministers of the word and, and we recognize and understand that eyewitness testimony of the apostles and their ministry, commission ministry of Jesus to deliver that word that, of, of Jesus' life and words to the whole world. The ministers of the word. In Luke chapter 24, verse 48, Jesus calls attention to this when he says, you are witnesses of these things. It was significant. This wasn't second-hand and third-hand accounts these were first-hand accounts by the apostles themselves who were able to convey through experience the very words of Jesus as they got to see them. They got to hear his words and observe his life. Uh, the apostle John talks about this in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You can almost feel the enthusiasm spilling out of these words as he says, "...that which was from the beginning." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. I mean, John is like, hey, we saw him. 
Hey, every, every aspect of the physical life we got to participate in. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We were living with the guy day in and day out, early mornings, late at nights, and all through the day when he was hungry, when he was thirsty, when he was tired, when the water was spilling into the boat and we were, we were terrified and, and Jesus was there. We, we got to see it all. We were firsthand witnesses to the, the marvelous, wonderful work of Christ. They got to enjoy it and, and they got to convey it to those who were around them. You got to say he was real, he was physical, yet he was God. In every way, the life of Jesus was lived before them, and they got to bear witness to this and share this with others. Of course, we know that one of the credentials of apostleship was a personal testimony with Jesus, a personal experience of the life and ministry of Christ. There in Acts chapter 1, where Peter and those who were believers were gathered together and trying to fill the vacancy because of Judas abandoning the team and denying or betraying the, the Lord Jesus Christ. In filling this vacancy, there was one credential that stood out above the others, and that is found in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Luke provides eyewitness account. Luke provides testimony from those who saw it first, saw it up close and personal. He's capturing it for this man, Theophilus, and for anyone else, everyone else who reads the narrative of the gospel of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. Luke is interested in the consistency of the present witness. But maybe more importantly, we find that he is also concerned with the consistency with confirmed scripture. Because at the end of the day, the testimony of witnesses can fail because it's dependent upon uh, human ability. But the testimony of God cannot fail. So Luke points to the consistency of Jesus' life with confirmed Scripture. We draw a, a bit of that from verse 1, where he says he compiles a narrative of the things that had been accomplished among us. And what did he mean by those things that had been accomplished among us? This word that he points to is a, a, a word that helps us to recognize that that um, that. Luke is looking for the things from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. It is an intensive compound word. It indicates completion, fulfillment of something. And in this case, God's redemptive plan working out through the life of Jesus Christ. It was accomplished. Luke would have been a student of the Old Testament. And we know from his work that he was a scholar. We can see it, and, and it's, it's kind of transparent to us because we're looking through the lens of an interpretation. But those who know the, the Greek language uh, have been able to say that Luke's gospel begins with a literary pro, uh, prologue or period that ranks among the best Greek literature of the first century. 
this first paragraph or first sentence, as it were, from verses 1 to verse 4 shows the scholarship of Luke and his ability to communicate in the Greek language. He was a scholar. But he was also a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul, who, when Paul is kind of sharing his credentials in the book of Galatians, he says that he excelled in Judaism beyond many of his own contemporaries in his own nation. Luke understood the scriptures. Luke devoted himself to the word of God. And and as a co-worker with the apostle Paul, Luke would would have understood the Old Testament as well. And he was looking for fulfillment the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, the, the confirmation of these Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled in prophecy through the life of Jesus and from the very beginning to the very end of his gospel draws attention to Jesus as the one. He is the Messiah. He is the one confirmed by the Old Testament, spoken by the word of God and showing forth the integrity of a life that lines up in every way with what we have come to expect from the Savior. Notice in verse 3 it says, It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Luke is a student. He's devoted to learning. He's devoted to studying the, the life of Jesus and comparing it with the things that the Old Testament says would be true about his life. In chapter 1, we see in in verse uh, 16 and 17 that the beginnings of this this emphasis and this theme coming to light, where the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, remember? He says, your prayers have been answered, Zechariah, and here's what you can expect to be true of your son, John the Baptist. Here's what his life and ministry will look like beginning in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now for anyone living in the first century who is familiar with the scriptures would have been very familiar with these words coming almost directly from Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 which are almost a direct quote from those verses where Malachi the prophet 400 years before says behold I will send you Elijah that prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and and then laced into the rest of this narrative, we see time after time after time the fulfillment of the word being completed in the life and ministry of Christ. So that Jesus opens his public ministry, and we find in Luke chapter 4, verse 21, where Jesus says of himself, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And towards the end of his ministry, before his ascension, talking to his disciples, the two on the road to Emmaus, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, where he says, And beginning with Moses 
and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I have fulfilled all the things you expected to see in Messiah, I'm the one. And then to his, to his disciples in the upper room, a few verses later, in Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The word that Luke is giving to us is a a word that comes with integrity. It's a word that comes in a way that is trustworthy. It is true. It's reliable. Not only by the present witnesses, but also by the confirmation of the things written about, about the Messiah in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the person and life of Jesus Christ. So, does inerrancy matter? Does the truth of the Word of God matter? Well, of course, it does. It's not like a cookbook that might be true and might help you to to prepare a meal. It's not like a, a textbook that it might be true, whether it's math or science or history, might be true in, in some respects, but it offers no real authority. Or it might be like a, a user manual that, 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 that can, it's not like a, a user manual that can help you to fulfill a certain function and, and figure out how to make things work. The Word of God, if it is true or since it is true, and since it comes from God, it is authoritative. It is the word of your creator and a word then that you must, as his creation, submit to and give your life to know and follow. There are four and probably 400 different ways that we could apply this this morning, but four that I want to just draw your attention to in our closing moments. I want you to realize that that those who believe the word of God is true will be those who live a spiritual life. Those who are called into life. Isaac referred to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what we were before Jesus. But when the word of God speaks to our heart, when it calls us into the light, when it calls us into relationship, it takes us from death to life. That's what the Word of God is intended to accomplish. John, again, in, verse, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 11 and 12, talk about the Word of God and then talk about what that Word is meant to accomplish in the lives of those who respond. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So big deal. Well, here's the big deal. He came to his own, speaking of Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you believe the word this morning? Do you see the word as authoritative? Have you bowed your knee to the word of Jesus, submitted your life to the commands of Jesus, given your heart to follow Jesus and come into relationship with Jesus through faith in Christ. Confession of sin. A turning away from sin and a turning to Christ 
a believing. As uh, the apostle Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Have you done that this morning? Do you believe in the integrity of the word to the extent that you see its authority, its, its, a, its authority over your life to call the shots and to help you understand that you cannot live this life independently from God who calls us into spiritual life. Well, not only will it lead us into a spiritual life, it will lead us into fellowship. Lead us into fellowship. We see that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. After John has talked about that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, now he gives us some insight as to why that matters. He says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God has not just called us into salvation, that we look and anticipate a future day in which we're going to be in heaven with him someday and free from the condemnation of judgment in hell, but he's calling us into a relationship that begins immediately fellowshipping with God and, and fellowshipping with one another. And so as, as God has called us into a response to the word of God, as a part of that, if we really believe in the word, we will be looking forward, anticipating, and eagerly pursuing relationship with one another and relationship with God. David talks about this in Psalm 1. He, he talks about the man who has submitted himself to the word of God, he meditates on it day and night. Is that the posture of your heart? In, in Jesus, in the upper room in John chapter 15, he talks about this abiding relationship that we can have with God. Abide in me. Let my words abide in you. This is the kind of relationship that God has called us into and, and welcomes us to enjoy and those who truly believe in the word will be those who really fellowship with God and really fellowship with one another. We see from 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, that it will lead to spiritual maturity. It will lead to spiritual maturity. You can't just have a spiritual life. You can't even live in a spiritual way independently from the word of God. And so a commitment to the word is a commitment to grow in the way that God has, has, has uh, allowed you to grow. All scripture, it says in 2 Timothy, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, or woman of God, or child of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to have a productive life? You want to have a, a, a life that is meaningful? That the energy that you spend will last? Well, there's only one way to do that. It's to, it's to couple your energy and align it with the, the, in partnership with the, the work of God. To be his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. But you can't know what that looks like unless you know what God, God's word says. Unless you know God himself. A high view of the scripture is a high view of God. Do you know the word? Are you delighting in the word? And finally, it will lead you to obedience or worship, whichever word you want to put, because I see these two terms as being synonymous. 
I'm just walking in accordance with the standard, which is important, but doing it in such a way that you are celebrating and seeking to call attention to the wonder of who God is. Our obedience really should be worship, not just mechanical alignment with the standard. It should be done because of an affection for Jesus, a love for him that expresses itself in this way. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, John continues this thought that we've already looked at in chapter 1. He says, what, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Why? Because of a commitment to truth, because of a love for God that shows up in a love for his word and a desire to express love to God through obedience to God. And as we saw in our passage this morning, as we saw, as we worked through 1 Peter that the word that was delivered or was uh, given to the ministers of the word and delivered to others, we saw in chapter 1, verse 3 of, of, of the Gospel of Luke. And, and then we see this orderly account that Luke had received the message of the word of God and then given it to Theophilus. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, we see the, the prophet's ministry. It says in chapter 1, verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. You see, a commitment to the word of God leads to obedience in letting others know the same word. Because as the word has shaped your life, there's a desire for others to, to celebrate and to be in on the action, to enjoy the same experience, uh, to, to fellowship with God and to fellowship with you that can only happen in right response to the word of God that is true. So you may believe that the word is true intellectually. The question for us this morning is, do you believe the word of God is true functionally and practically? And it will play out in how you live. It will play out in the, in the expectations in your life, the standard that you set, the measures by which you evaluate your life and success in life, whatever that might be. May God help us to commit ourselves, not only to prayer that we looked at a couple weeks ago, but, but commit ourselves to know and love and trust the word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Thank you. That it is trustworthy and reliable and that it gives us hope, it gives us confidence that we can have certainty in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of this certainty that we can share this word with others, a word that changes hearts and lives. Oh God, may we see, especially this year, the word that's planted not returning void. May we get to see the evidence of the fruit of faithful word that you have given to us, entrusted to us, may we be faithful to plant it and to send it abroad. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you. Have a good week.